Well, if you could uh, stand with me, sorry to make you do that again, as we read uh, from the Word of God. We'll be reading from uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 11. It's an exciting time. Uh, the next four weeks, we'll be starting uh, a series of Easter messages. Um, really, uh, my own personal bent, but uh, it should be the high day of our calendar as a Christian church. I know we celebrate, uh, we put a lot of emphasis on Christmas, but uh, without Easter, we'd all still be uh, dead in our sin. Um, so anyway, I'm excited today to start um, that, that series on, uh, on Easter. So if you can follow along with me. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared sorry, to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and by his grace toward me, it was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you... Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it, even now, as we've just read, that the gospel is preached to us, the gospel of the coming of the Lord Jesus to earth and his perfect life and his death for sins and his burial and his resurrection from the dead, and his appearance to many people. Lord, we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the gospel this morning, help us to rejoice more than just the gospel in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that the gospel would not be to us only words on these pages, but that the gospel would impress on our hearts by your spirit the necessity for a response, a response of belief. Lord, we pray that we would see the risen Christ one day by your grace, and we pray that we would have some sense of the Lord Jesus before our eyes as we open up your scriptures this morning. We pray that you would carry us along in the understanding of your word. I pray that you would preach to us. Amen. If you haven't already, turn in your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as a, a bit of a way of introduction, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is what we'll be looking at for the coming uh, four weeks. Uh, with the kind of pinnacle happening on Easter Sunday. So, four weeks, we are studying the doctrine of the resurrection, and uh, it's as recorded by Paul to the Corinthian church in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Tim Keller said this about the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. So this is true, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to 
each of our lives. It is central to Christianity. It's central to the world, ultimately. All things hinge on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God knew that this was the case. He knew that this would be the point of attack on the church, on Christian doctrine. And uh, it's for this reason that he provides this instruction to us on the resurrection from the pen of Paul to the, the Corinthian church. Now, 1 Corinthians 15 is actually the most extensive treatment on the resurrection in all of the scriptures. Uh, 1 Corinthians as a whole is, is more geared toward uh, uh, belief. It's more geared toward, uh, I should say, um, how the Corinthian church is acting in light of the gospel. He's kind of correcting uh, the sin that exists in their lives. He's confronting them. He's correcting their behavior. And he's urging them toward Christ-glorifying lives. But, chapter 15, where we start here, he is, uh, he's talking about doctrine. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15 kind of stands alone in the rest of the book as a uh, single, well-thought-out, well-reasoned, persuasive argument for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of believers. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul talks about Jesus Christ crucified. He says that, I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now it's chapter 2. Now chapter 15, I declare to you that Jesus was raised from the dead is what he says. So the resurrection, which we study this morning, bookends his teaching uh, in the letter to the Corinthians here. So the message for all of us this morning is that Christ was raised on the third day. We are endeavoring to sound the depths of really the unsearchable truth that Christ was raised. God became man, died, was buried, was raised from the dead. Now why is Paul writing about the resurrection? Well you can look just past our passage this morning. Look in verse 12. Paul says this, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? He's saying that if Christ was raised, how can you say there's no such thing as resurrection? So the implication is that there was some kind of question that the Corinthian church posed to Paul. There was some sort of confusion about the resurrection. Uh, they weren't quite sure on this, this item, so Paul writes specifically to correct their thinking with regard to the resurrection, and he seeks to do that in these first 11 verses to show them that they can have complete confidence that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And he, he does this because, as we've alluded to, everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Again, looking at our passage just a little bit further than what we're looking at today, just to give you a sense of the context. In verse 17, he says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this is the reason that you must know the resurrection. On it, everything hinges. Now, to show you a little bit uh, more of the importance of the resurrection before we actually get into what the evidence is, if Christ has not been raised, you will never rise again because we were dead in sins and you will remain dead. And if you are dead and Christ was not raised, you will not be raised with him. You will never rise again. If you uh, are dead in your sins and Christ was not raised, then you will just go back to the earth. You will return to dust and that will be the end of you. Or you will... Uh, as some religions teach, you'll come back as uh, maybe some nice creature and you'll continue this cycle of death and reincarnation. But this isn't the case if we believe the words of God because he says, if Christ was raised from the dead, so will you if you believe in the Lord Jesus. So you want to be sure of your own resurrection, you better be sure of Christ's resurrection. Also, the resurrection is not just the destiny of every Christian, it's the destiny of the whole universe 
Christ was raised from the dead as the first fruits of believers, and he was also raised from the dead as a uh, testimony to what will happen to all of this earth. The Lord will destroy the present earth that we have here with fire, and he will create in its place a new heaven and a new earth resurrected from the dead ashes, and it will be the place where we all exist to the glory of God in our new resurrected bodies. So it is all existence and all reality and all good and all evil and everything that points toward the resurrection of Jesus Christ and hinges on it. Also salvation, this might be more familiar to you. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 11.25, our Lord says this, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation of sins. If we do not believe that Jesus physically and bodily and truly and really raised from the dead, we will not be saved. And the converse is true that if you believe that Jesus was raised physically, bodily from the dead and you place your faith in him, you will be saved. Salvation pivots on your disbelief or your belief of the resurrected Christ. Also, Jesus' deity hinges on this fact. He said that he would rise from the dead, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And he uh, made many claims of being God. And uh, so, by raising from the dead, his deity is confirmed before our eyes. And it's also the scriptures that are confirmed by the resurrection. They make many claims of that, and we'll see that we know because God has raised Jesus from the dead, that his word is true. So the Bible, the church, our lives, the entire world, all reality hinges on this fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he was not raised, there is no hope. If he is raised, there's great hope. So as an introduction in that way, to build his argument, Paul then uh, takes this, uh, this doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ this week, and then he builds on that in the following weeks, as we'll see. If Jesus was raised, you'll be raised. So he takes what they already know, namely the Christ's uh, resurrection, to show them what they must also believe, which is their resurrection. And notice they're in that order. Jesus first, then you. Christ is the first fruits. He is the hope that we will be raised. So how does Paul uh, proclaim to the Corinthian church that they must know that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. He does this with many witnesses. We're going to look at eight witnesses, in fact, which is quite a few, but we'll kind of move through them relatively quickly, though we'll give a little bit more time to the first two. By witness, what I mean is that they testify to the fact that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Now imagine as we're going through this kind of a courtroom setting, and Paul is, uh, as the attorney, calling to the stand these witnesses to testify to the resurrection. And uh, in that way, he wants to bring a numerous uh, group of them, and he wants to bring uh, witnesses that have unique testimony to the resurrection. So each of these you'll notice, and that's what we'll try to uh, see, they each have a unique uh, uh, perspective on the resurrection of Christ. The first witness of the resurrected Christ is the living witness that is the Corinthian church. Look at the ver uh, verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, before I, uh, I tell you uh, some, some new things. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel that was already preached to you, the gospel in which you've already uh, believed, you already stand in it, uh, you're already saved by it. This isn't anything new, he says. He's asking them, you know, we're on the same page. It's a gospel I already preached to you. When he says, you took your stand, it's uh, sort of emphatic in that it's in the Greek perfect tense, meaning it happened at a point in time. They took their stand on this gospel that he preached to them, and it continues to have its effect. They continue to remain standing on the gospel. 
and following that, by which you're being saved. And this also gives the sense that they're continually being saved. They're continually being sanctified and made holy by the word of God. So never mind a gospel that doesn't save, but here it is, a gospel that saves. Now, from the, the perspective of the early church and uh, the first, uh, or the Corinthian church here in 1 Corinthians, it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that really fueled that early church. It was uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ in the resurrection of Jesus uh, that was the central theme of the preaching of the apostles in the early church in the book of Acts. And what fueled them was now fueling the Corinthian church. So the point here, the implication of verses 1 and 2, is that you Corinthians are already a living testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. You see, you're already being saved by this gospel. You already stand in it. You believe these things. It's changing you from the heart. You are a witness to the resurrected Christ. Now, uh, just a little bit to give you an understanding of the challenges that face the Corinthian church in understanding this gospel. Um, if anyone's saved by the gospel, it's miraculous, but especially the Corinthians, they were in uh, a culture that was, uh, you know, Greek. They were, uh, had this thought of dualism, that the things that are physical realities are really evil, uh, but it's the spiritual, it's the philosophy, it's all these things that are actually uh, what's important. So they had a, uh, a trouble in that case having categories of thought for even understanding the resurrection. Also, the Jews were divided on the resurrection. Um, uh, s some of them maybe being uh, Jewish. The Sadducees, mainly uh, wealthy aristocrats, we know them from the Gospels, they confronted Jesus. They did not believe in the resurrection. They denied the supernatural. So even the Jews were uh, somewhat divided on the fact of whether the resurrection is even possible. Also, the Corinthian church was sort of Corinthianized, so to speak. Um, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But brothers... I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. And it says jealousy and strife is still among you and all of this. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of the kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He says you're boasting and all of this. So they're very confused as a, as a bunch. So just to get them on the same page with regard to the things of God was going to be a difficult task. But Paul here in these verses, he says, it's the truth which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Andrew Murray said this, a dead Christ I must do everything for. A living Christ does everything for me. And that's exactly what happened here. This, first, this uh, Corinthian church was dead, but the living Christ did everything for them, and they are, by their lives, a uh, living witness to the resurrection of Christ. I'll note just briefly that he also says it's a gospel which uh, you are saved by if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. He says, your salvation is a, uh, resur is a testimony to the resurrection if you believe. And the converse, unless you believed in vain, which he says here. And uh, you, you say, what is this? How, how can you believe in vain? I thought if you believe in the resurrected Christ and you place your faith in him, uh, then you're saved. What about eternal security and the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, and all these things? Well, what he says here is that they'll be saved if they keep the faith. That's what he says, if they keep the faith. The point is, you see, if I don't keep the faith, it proves that I never believed. Jesus said, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You didn't hold fast the word that was preached to you. You were deceived. You were deceived by your sin. You were deceived by the devil. You believed in vain. So this is how you know that you will be saved like the Corinthians. You will be saved if you hold fast to the word that was preached to you. It's the word that's preached to you even now. And the word that's preached to you now is the gospel. Continuing on in verses 3 and 4, we see now what is the gospel that Paul's talking about? What is the gospel that they stand in and that they take their stand in and that they're saved by? It is the gospel of, look at this, verse 3, verse 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the gospel. He says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. These are the first things. These are the primary things that the Corinthian church ought to know and that we ought to know even this morning. He says also it's the message that he received. It's not his message. It's the message of God. It's the message of Jesus Christ. It's the message of the one who was raised from the dead and proved that he was God. He is delivering to us, he's delivering to the Corinthian church, the message that he received. It doesn't come with his authority. It comes with the authority of Jesus. Now, what if the unbelieving world asks you, what is Christianity all about? And it's really confused often in our, our modern world. What's Christianity all about? It's a great passage to take them to. It's very simple. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and that he was raised on the third day. This is the gospel. So often it's twisted and it's the gospel of prosperity in this world or it's the gospel of uh, orthodox belief but a life that doesn't match that gospel and doesn't hold fast to the word preached. No, the gospel is that Christ died and he was buried and he was raised from the dead. And even as I was uh, preparing this, this sermon, a, uh, a JW walked up to me. I wasn't at home. I was at, uh, at a coffee shop. And they talked about the, the gospel, what the gospel is. And it didn't really match up at all with what our gospel is. And they believe that uh, Jesus was Michael the Archangel, and he came to earth, and he died. But he didn't die for our sins. He died for uh, our sinful nature and that he rose from the dead, but he didn't rise bodily. He rose in kind of some spiritual ethereal sense, and uh, then he ascended, and he's even already returned in 1914, and he reigns invisibly on earth, and he's building his kingdom, but it doesn't match up at all with what, Paul, with, with the apostle Paul says here, that he was died, and he was buried, and he was raised from the dead bodily, and that's what we'll see The implication here also is that Christ lived. Before we get to the fact that he died, he lived. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life that we could not live, and he lived in uh, fulfillment of all of God's commands. So right here we see in its simplest form the gospel, and it's really like gospel 101, but it's also kind of the PhD program because uh, we'll never really get to the bottom of this truth here. Let's look at these in a little more depth. Verse 3, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Right here, I will say that this is our second witness to the fact of the resurrection. It is the ancient witness and the scriptures make this testimony that Jesus is raised from the dead. Now, the Old Testament is filled with prophecy about this, and uh, of course, a lot of them are familiar to us, the prophecies that Jesus would, in particular, die for our sins. Paul probably had some passages like Isaiah 53 in mind. Isaiah 53, uh, verse 4 and 5, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Verse 9 and 10, it says, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. We also see the death of Jesus Christ prophesied uh, innumerable times, really, in the Old Testament. It's what you could say the Old Testament is all about. He's pictured in the constant sacrifices day by day as instituted by God in the Old Covenant that there would be this constant, bloody sacrifice every day, every week, every month, every year. And it was a reminder that the people were sinful and they were not living up to the law that God had given. There was a constant flow of blood from the altar, from the temple, and it was the blood that pointed toward Jesus who must atone for our sins if there's going to be any hope. Often the animal was a lamb. And what does John say, the, John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the Messiah slain for sin that is so consistently prophesied in the Old Testament. Also, the ritual of the Passover and the blood is painted on the doorpost and the angel of death passes over. And uh, in this way, it pictures Jesus Christ applied to our lives. His blood and death will pass us over. Notice he also says that Christ died for our sins. He didn't die so that we could have a, a good life. He didn't die to know, balance your checkbook or to uh, sort out all the relationships that seem to be in disarray in your life, but he died to atone for your sins as a substitute. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins, and this death wasn't like Christ. You were dead, and there was no hope. You weren't going to rise from the dead, except for that Christ was raised from the dead, and because he is raised, we might be raised as well. It's by grace you have been saved through faith. So how does this make Our sins look, if Jesus had to die for them, makes them look pretty ugly. Moving on to verse 4, he was buried. And what's the point of he was buried? We won't spend a lot of time on it. It's pretty simple. He was buried, and that says that he was dead. One might claim that he didn't die, even though the Romans were pretty good at this thing of crucifixion, and they even pierced his side through with a spear, and blood and water came out to show that his heart had been pierced. You know, he was dead, and he was buried. And how many people come out of the grave after they're buried? Not many people. He was dead. And in verse 4, in the second part, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And here we get kind of to the pinnacle of what it is that Paul has before us today, that Jesus Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We'll note a few things here, that Jesus was raised bodily is the first thing. Often this can kind of pass us by, but Jesus was raised. It says nothing that he lost his body. He was raised in his body. Luke 24, verses 36 through 43. And he had just appeared to the disciples, some of them on the road to Emmaus, and they just realized who it was that appeared to them. It was Jesus Christ. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took and he ate before them. Jesus 
raised bodily from the dead. Also, Jesus not only raised bodily from the dead, but he ascended to the Father bodily. There's a logical inconsistency to say that Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to his disciples and he made a point of showing that he was in his same body, in his resurrected body, but then somehow he was going to lose his body and his humanity on the way up to be united with the Father in heaven. It doesn't make any sense in Acts chapter 1. At the ascension, he had just given the disciples their great commission. They'll be witnesses in the world. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing on into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He ascended bodily. Also, Jesus did not only ascend bodily, but he resides in that same body right now in heaven, and he will return in that same body when he comes back to earth on the clouds. It says uh, in that passage we just read by those angels, why do you stare looking on? The Son of Man is going to come down in the same way in which he went up. He's going to come down on the clouds in glory from the Father, and he's going to come down in his body. In that same body, Jesus was returning, and in that same body, every eye will see him and they will believe at that point what he said. So, how often do you hear that, that Jesus is man and that he's still in his body? Well, fairly often if you're around here, but how often is it lost on contemporary Christianity around us? So, we don't want to complicate it and say that somehow Jesus uh, you know, did this and this and this and he kind of lost his body on the way. No, he is in his body Jesus rose in his body. He ascended in his body. He's returning in his body. He rose on the third day. Jesus was crucified on the Friday, the Good Friday, buried that night, and then he was in the tomb on the Saturday, the Sabbath, the second day, and then he rose on the third day, and that is now our Easter Sunday. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You'll see there at the end of verse 4 in accordance with the Scriptures. And that's our point right now. What do the Scriptures have to say about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, uh, the Scriptures have a few things to say in that the Scriptures look forward to the resurrection, they see the resurrected Christ, and they record it in the, in the, in the Bible for us. Um, I'll just point out a couple of them. And in the book of Jonah... The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Jesus said in Matthew twelve forty, This is the fulfillment of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so there are many other examples of the scriptures testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, and he, here's, here's one more in Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter, in his great sermon, just after Pentecost, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he testifies to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not from their eyewitnesses in this case, but from Psalm 16. Psalm 16, he quotes it, he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. These are really the words of Jesus spoken through David. David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That is, nor was he left to decay in the grave. But Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, Peter says. So, the scriptures are the ancient witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the first two witnesses 
now we will we'll move through these a little bit more quickly. Now we have the eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and these are in this kind of courtroom setting. Uh, these would be some of the most important, the ones who actually saw with their eyes the resurrected Christ, and they could say with consistency, here is our testimony. Look at verse 5, the beginning of it. That he appeared to Cephas. He was raised from the dead and he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Cephas, his Aramaic name. What's unique about Peter, uh, and you'd probably be able to tell me this, that Peter was, uh, he was the denier. So here we're going to title it, The Denying Witness, and it is Peter. And how did Peter deny? In Luke chapter 22, 31 to 34, Jesus says this before he was offered up to be crucified. He says, Simon, Simon, is Peter's pre-Christian name, which gives all the more meaning to Jesus' words. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And then further on, what happens? The people say, oh, this is the man that knew Jesus. And he says, no, it's, I, I didn't know him. He says, no, this is the man that knew Jesus. No, I didn't know him. He swears with an oath. He says, man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter, remembering the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The Lord looked at him, and Peter realized he had denied the Lord, just as the Lord had said. But what happens to Peter? Peter, the denier, he ends up becoming Maybe the boldest witness as recorded in the first part of the Acts of the Apostles. Uh, Jesus at some point obviously appeared to Peter. Uh, we know that in the Gospels. But he, maybe he appeared to him uh, on his own as well. And at this point, Peter, the one who denied Jesus, then became one of the boldest uh, testimonies to the resurrected Christ. And at his sermon at Pentecost that we alerted, uh, alluded to. Paul says, or Peter says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And you can hear in his words the boldness and the, the change of heart that the Lord had wrought in him because he had seen the risen Christ. As you might know, uh, Peter, later on in his life, as the story goes, he was killed for his witness to the resurrection and he was crucified upside down because he did not want to be killed like his Lord. So the resurrection is witnessed by Peter, the denier. Our fourth witness, the, the apostolic witness, we're calling it, which is the twelve. Look back at our passage, the second half of verse five. Then he appeared to the twelve. Now the twelve is uh, a reference to the apostles, the twelve disciples, really a name only at this point because there were only eleven of them. Judas had died of his suicide and uh, there were eleven of them and the, the twelfth place was replaced by Matthias. And uh, you also notice that Matthias was replaced as one of the twelve partly because he was a witness to Jesus Christ's life, his ministry on earth for three years, 
uh, in some way, and he was also a witness to the resurrection, and that's why he ended up being included as part of the 12, because he was a witness to the resurrection. Acts 1, uh, 21, uh, or somewhere else in this passage. I can't remember exactly where. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. Uh, so Matthias became part of the group. Now, the, the, the point of the apostles witnessing the resurrection is that they were uh, first called the disciples, and the disciples means they were students. They followed Jesus around. They knew his ministry. Uh, but more than disciples, in the remainder of the New Testament, they're referred to as the apostles. Apostles mean they're the sent ones, the ones that were given a commission. They were messengers. So the apostles' identity was actually tied up in their witness to the resurrected Christ, and it was uh, during that witness uh, to the appearance of Christ that God gave them, through Jesus, the uh, great commission to the church. So these 12 men were leaders of the new covenant, the new Israel. These men were successful where the religious leaders had failed Israel. They were really 12 ordinary men, and they were hated by the world. They were despised. Matthew was a tax collector. They had uh, ordinary occupations, but God made them uh, capable to his call, made them extraordinary men, gave them a divine calling from the Lord, and they witnessed his resurrection, and they went out from there. And in fact, most of them died for their faith, all but John. The fifth witness to the resurrection is the 500, verse 6. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. You notice here first that the, the, group, the group is a very large group. It's 500. Imagine your courtroom setting. We've got five witnesses to the stand. They all say the same thing, that Jesus appeared to us on such and such a day, and he did this, and we touched him, and he said this to us. All of their uh, testimonies are the exact same. That is a good witness. There are arguments made that perhaps all of those that witnessed the resurrection were just kind of imagining things, or they're hallucinating, they're seeing the dead. I read a statistic yesterday that 13% of people see the dead in, that in, their, in their grieving, in their mourning. They think that they've seen someone who's died. Well, right here we have 500 people that didn't have categories for thought in their mind of resurrection, and they saw the risen Lord. He says, most of whom are still alive. Imagine if uh, we heard that 500 people witnessed something here in Barrie, and uh, you know, they're brothers in Christ, so we, we trust them all the more, and they attest to the fact that they saw something. Here he says, these are 500 people, probably that they knew, and you can go and you can talk to them, and they'll give you the same testimony, all 500 of them, because they're still alive. Though some have fallen asleep, I'll just note here that, uh, that they've fallen asleep, meaning, of course, that they died, euphemism that Paul often uses in the New Testament, but the, the fact that he says they've fallen asleep, what happens to people that have fallen asleep? They wake. They rise. These people had fallen asleep, but it was only their bodies that fell asleep. It wasn't their souls. Their souls were with the Lord, to be apart from the bodies, to be with the Lord, and their bodies will one day rise from the dead. So Paul is, uh, to remind you, responding to the confusion among the Corinthian people that how can people rise from the dead? And he gives them here 500 people that they know that they can talk to that testify to the fact that he was raised. And that's our fifth witness. The sixth witness that we call to the stand by Paul's words here 
is the unbelieving witness, and that's James, the brother of Jesus. Verse 8, or verse 7, the first part, he says, Then he appeared to James. Uh, he could be here referring to James, the son of Zebedee, or James, the son of Alphaeus, the apostles. But more than likely, he was, he was referring to James, the brother of Jesus. Um, it makes it all the more poignant because what's unique about this witness here is that James was an unbeliever all through Jesus' ministry. He was his brother. He knew him intimately. Uh, he had that unique perspective on Jesus' life. But he was not a believer. In John chapter 7, says that not even his brothers believed him. This is how we know that James was not a believer. And to emphasize it, at Jesus' death, Jesus looks at John, he looks at his mother Mary, and he says, uh, John, here I entrust to you the care of Mary, my mother. And I'd imagine he wouldn't have done that if James was a believer in him. But, as would happen with Peter and all the apostles, James, after he witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, he becomes one of the boldest uh, witnesses that there is. In his sermon in Acts 15, he says, Brothers, listen to me. And he makes this emphatic uh, message to them that could only be possible if he was empowered by the Spirit of God, and if he had been changed in part by seeing the resurrected Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, in fact, actually becomes one of the pillars of the Jerusalem church, and according to various sources, James was killed for his belief, either being thrown from a building or being stoned or both. Uh, so, he's a witness to the resurrection, and... Uh, James also happened to write the, the book of James. In James chapter 22, James, the one who was once an unbeliever, now a believer, he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. You could say that James was a hearer of the word. He was intimately involved in a uh, familial sense in, in Jesus' life on earth. He was a denier. God made him a doer of the word. That's our sixth witness to the resurrection the seventh witness to the resurrection is, uh, actually first, we'll just mention that, that the, he says the apostles in the second half of verse 7. He says, then to all the apostles, and this could be, it could be another appearance of Jesus to the apostles before he was ra uh, ascended to the Father during those 40 days after his resurrection. It could be that. It could be that the apostles are sort of a little a apostle and they are uh, inclusive of many other people that were witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. But either way, uh, he appeared also to all the apostles. Our seventh witness is the final eyewitness, and it's uh, Paul himself. Look at these next verses, uh, starting in verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul here becomes, as unlikely as it is, a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He appeared first to all of these other people, and last of all, he appears to Paul. He says, as to one untimely born, 
This one is uh, somewhat difficult to understand these Greek words in our context right now, but the, the, the word ektroma, it means that uh, he's referring to himself as a premature baby, an abortion. He refers to himself as a fetus. The point here, I think, is what he's saying uh, is that he was born into this world in a spiritual sense when he was still unformed. We said that Jesus appeared to the apostles and he appeared to James. and These things sort of make sense that they knew Jesus. It would make sense that Jesus would appear to them in his resurrected body. But it doesn't really make sense that Jesus appeared to Paul as he was before the appearance. But he says he was born as if a premature child. He was born when it was not ready. Jesus appeared to him in a very unlikely way. The others had kind of come to term, being carried with Jesus through his ministry. He was born, and it didn't make sense if there was a person least, des- least deserving to see and obey the call, it was the Apostle Paul himself and uh, saying that he was uh, born in this way also gives the sense that he was the lowest of the low. If you can say that on a human scale, he was the one whom the world would despise and especially in our world today, if you can imagine, he said, I am an abortion. He was the most unlikely witness of all. And he's regarded as the most credible as as well, even in in secular uh, uh, realms. Uh, I'll mention that Adam, I was speaking with him, our pastor Adam was uh, telling me that in his undergrad that he couldn't unbelieve the verses that say that Paul was once a persecutor but then he saw the risen Christ and he was made an apostle. And there's some way that you could maybe uh, forget about some of the other witnesses, but even the secular world agrees that they think deeply about these things. Apostle Paul, he was a credible source. He was a real man, and uh, many things attest to that. And he was a persecutor of the church, and he was made a witness to Jesus Christ. The point here is that Paul was... A persecutor. He wasn't even just a lukewarm believer. It wasn't like he kind of walked around with Jesus uh, during his earthly ministry and then he kind of fell away or he denied, like in the case of Peter, but he didn't believe at all. In fact, Acts uh, 9, verses 1 to 6, picture this. But Saul, that is Paul, Still believing, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that was a reference to the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so began his apostolic commission. The one who was a persecutor of the church is now an apostle of the church, the one sent by God with a message and a commission personally from the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we don't want to miss this further on in that passage. Um, He had appeared to Paul and Paul's life was transformed. And uh, in Acts 9, verse 23, it says that the Jews plotted to kill him. He says, I was the finest specimen of a Jew. Uh, I was in obedience to all the laws. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, circumcised on the eighth day, and so on. 
And now the Jews plot to kill Paul. That is a testimony to the transformation that Jesus made in the life of Saul the persecutor to make him the Apostle Paul. And he says in verse 10, his grace was proved effective in my unrelenting labor, essentially. God made me the most valiant of the bunch. Though I was a persecutor, I went from one extreme to the other, and now I work harder than any of the others, though it was not I who worked, but the Lord by his grace in me. Now it was also not just a vision that he saw. He saw the Lord in his body. You notice he says, just like he lists all of the other witnesses, he says that he appeared also to me. He appeared to these folks, and he appeared to these folks, and and these folks. He appeared also to me in the same way. And he says that elsewhere in his writings, he appeared to him. He didn't have a dream or a vision. He literally got a personal commission from the resurrected Lord Jesus. He appeared to Paul in his body. Now in this, Paul isn't really primarily trying to prove that he stands on the same level as the twelve, though he, he does do that. Um, but he's primarily, and this is what we, we need to see, that he's primarily seeking to authenticate the message that Jesus raised from the dead, and he uses the transformation of his life as a witness to that truth. The final thing we'll note about Paul um, in his words here, he says, last of all, I could say, don't expect an appearance from Jesus to you. Jesus appeared to Paul as last of all. He will not appear to you unless he's coming on the clouds. As we've seen recently in 2 Timothy, this is what Paul says near his death. He knows that he isn't going to be released from prison, that his death is imminent. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. And he died a martyr. And like others, a witness to the resurrection particular, a witness to the resurrection in his transformed life. Once he was Saul of Tarsus, but now, because he saw the risen Christ, he's Paul the Apostle. And it is one of the most amazing messages of transformation in what the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ can do in a man, in what it did for Paul. That's our seventh witness to the resurrection. The eighth and the final witness we'll look at this morning is The unified witness. And what is the unified witness? It's the witness of a common message. Look at verse 11. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And it's simply this. The same Jesus who died on the cross appeared to many, many people with identical accounts of what that uh, appeared Lord Jesus looks like. They were, as we've seen, a, a weak and undeserving, a foolish lot by the world's standards, but the Lord chose in his divine will to Make them witnesses to his resurrection. And there's no way their message would agree if it was fabricated. This doesn't happen in the testimony of law unless my, um, you know, current experience is kind of skewed by black and white law movies and courtroom scenes. But if they're... 
if their experience seeing the Lord Jesus wasn't actually real, if they made it up, if it was fabricated, no chance it would agree. But he says, whether then it was I or they, meaning whether uh, this person uh, tells you or whether I tell you, whoever preaches to you that they saw the Lord Jesus and that this is the gospel, they agree. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, so we preach the resurrected Christ. That is the common message, and it becomes the unified witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, as a summary, this isn't really even an exhaustive list that Paul gives here, though there's, there's so much, uh, but we could name many other things, such as baptism, which we'll be experiencing in a little while. And they're all examples in the scriptures of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope of a resurrection. And if you know my father and he were standing up here, he could probably name another 101 uh, witnesses to the resurrection from extra-biblical literature and historical writings and uh, logical arguments and the reliability of biblical manuscripts and all these. But this is the witness, uh, Paul and all of these others that he calls to the stand that Paul brings to our attention in this courtroom of 1 Corinthians the question Paul leaves us with is do you believe or do you deny that Jesus was raised from the dead confirming the gospel that was preached you see the gospel isn't just a litany of facts it's not just the words that he died and was buried and was raised but the gospel itself calls for an action it calls for response it calls for belief or disbelief do we believe that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and rose on the third day? He says that these are the matters of first importance. If there's anything you must believe, it's these matters that Jesus died and was buried and that he was raised on the third day. John eleven twenty five 25, again, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He is the resurrection if anyone believes in him, he can live. Would that the Lord, through our witness, would draw many people to saving faith in Christ and uh, thereby we, we pray to the Lord that he would make us now living witnesses like he made the Corinthian church to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we would go forward boldly as the apostles did, even if the Lord should so ask unto death. Henry Halley's Bible handbook speaks of the resurrection in these terms, and we will close. What a hail of glory this simple belief sheds on human life. Our hope of resurrection and life everlasting is based not on a philosophic guess about immortality, but an historic fact. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we rejoice right now in your resurrection. We love to see all of these witnesses to the fact that you died for our sins and you were buried and you rose from the dead on the third day, thereby proclaiming that you are God and that everything you said is true and that the gospel of you, our Lord, really saves. Lord, we pray that we would understand this gospel to be the matters of first importance, that we would know the gospel above all things, that we would proclaim the gospel to this world who is otherwise dead in their sins and will not rise. We ask, Lord, that you would establish this fact of the resurrection as we mull over these thoughts from this passage and as we think about the ramifications of your resurrection in the following weeks. 
We pray, Lord, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ would excite us above so many things in this world that we would place our hope in him. Lord, we pray that you would also establish this fact in our hearts so that we could comprehend our resurrection from the dead, that we could comprehend what it really means for there to be victory over death and what it really means for us to not have to die, but for us to be able to look forward to a new resurrected life in the new resurrected heavens and earth. We pray, Lord, that we would believe in Jesus raised from the dead. Have your work in our hearts. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.